Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. I'm Morgan. Happy Thursday. Happy week in between Christmas and New Year's. And happy episode 170. This week is so pointless. No, why can't it just be like Christmas, New Year? Just like the next day. Back to back to back. Or just let's have like a universal shutdown. I agree. You know, like everyone just go have a holiday. Hospitals are closed. Yeah, closed. Don't Don't come in. Don't get into an accident. Don't get sick. Everyone like this is just God's gift to everyone is that everyone is healthy for that week yeah i think so i think god would agree you know i'm gonna make that happen i'm gonna pray every night i'm just gonna pray to god (laughs) and then how about aaron i'm calling him i'm like bullshit i'm like hey what are you doing he's like i'm getting fingerprinted right now i'm like i'm sorry for what just call up our girl from the forensic department like what do you mean are you with are you with jay (laughs) oh i gotta get it so i can get my badge for the knox county schools i'm like what is your job exactly in the fucking schools bro what are you what is your job i'll never understand guys if you know anybody in that career of project management let me tell you it's overarching varies for every person like we met this girl a couple Mm -hmm. weeks ago she's like oh i do project management i was like oh that's what my fiance does and I was like, so what kind of projects do you manage? What, what do you, I and technically am like, also a project she's manager. She's like, I do HR. I'm like, what? What the fuck is that? I, I thought it was all construction. Then what tell do you me, mean? No, don't say that you're project manager. Say that you're HR. All I'm right. Like, Aaron, what are you doing in Knox County? You, Knox County schools. I don't, I don't get it, guys. I'll never understand. You know, Logan tried to explain to me what Aaron does the other day. And I was like, uh, Aaron can't even explain it. I don't think that's right, sir. And he was like, I talk to Aaron every day. It's right. I said, I talk to Morgan every day. That's not right. And he was like, well, are you asking Morgan what Aaron's doing? I'm like, yeah. Well, she doesn't know either, <laughs> clearly. And I was like, well, do you know? Well, not really. That's what I thought. I have no idea. So basically, but we can assume that Aaron is doing illegal mobster shit. That's what I'm thinking. I think project management is just like, I'm an accountant. He's a That mob. is what it is. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. the same version of I'm I'm an accountant. Yeah, it is. Because it doesn't, it's a fucking cover up. Because Sorry. It's, they, it's like overarching. It's like a million things. That's it's like crazy. That's like if we were like, oh, what do you do? Oh, we do project management. Oh, what for? Oh, it's a project called Creeps and Crimes. We are. We we're manage project it. managers. We're project managers over so, here. So there's I that. Don't I don't know. Anyone need to hire us? Let us yeah. know. We're, you know, we're project managers. We're also project managers of um, interior design. And project managers. Oh, my God. I never tell, tell, uh, sent you the proposal for my other business idea. I saw it. Yeah. Did you see? I have. Well, I have a grasp of it by just what I saw. Yeah. On you Google saw that Docs. on there? Yeah. That was good, right? Yeah. Me, I, I broke it down to like exactly what the investment would have to be. Yeah. And how many employees without employees, how many things that we'd have to have booked to immediately like bottom out within the first three. I mean, not bottom out to break even within mm-hmm. the first three months and start making profits off of it. Yeah. We don't need employees. Their names are Aaron and Logan. Yeah. They're going to go move the stuff. But there's added value that, that I kind of wrote in that doc. And But. Look, I'm going to be frank. I just glanced at it. I really, I didn't pay much attention. It's a great idea. Yeah. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. We have to talk about it later because someone's going to steal it. I have a story for you. Okay. What is it? Growing up, actually not a story. Hello? Growing up, (laughs) did your dad stuff your mom's stocking or did your mom stuff her own stocking or did your parents even have stockings? My parents, when I was younger, I remember them doing like stockings, but not very often did like I don't remember as like being cognitive you Mm -hmm. know in my head my parents ever having stuff in their stockings like what we our stockings what are your stockings okay wait what are in your stockings that's what I need to know my stockings always included a gift card Mm -hmm. and then 
usually candy Mm -hmm. and sometimes like a beauty product but Mm -hmm. like nothing major like it wouldn't like it would just be like here's mascara like yep an update of what you're running out of exactly that's what mine were like only updates of what you're running out but mostly candy and snacks oh we never had candies and snacks oh if you want candies and snacks walk into the kitchen actually my family wasn't a candies and snacks person it was a um, beef jerky (laughs) beef in that bitch and peeps because my mom knows that none of us likes peeps and she'd put that in there so she'd get her own peeps i love peeps um no we did so every year like that i can remember always in our um stockings are new underwear mm. like because you know victoria secrets does the five for 25 yeah like all so my mom always gets us like the 20, 10 or whatever things of underwear each she goes and gets us our favorite sleeping panties that's why i get a revamp of sleeping panties every christmas i need she a stocking of that she house. gets in more sleeping panties and then she normally will get us like a thing of lip gloss like those that you can get in like christmas bundles of mm-hmm. all the testers and all that and then other like little products like that that we want to try out or if there's like a specific one that we want blushes highlighters and bronzers these little sample squares and i got those and i was see mine was more like lip smackers yeah i would get those but then when we got older they yeah she was like we're gonna have to fucking make them work but i did (laughs) get the big coke 10 of the smackers oh i know you're talking you know i'm talking about the coke 10 yeah with them all in there and i had like dr pepper and all the things anyways why why so i well i saw this tiktok and it was like look at look at your life and see like what kind of person your dad was did he stuff your mom's Mm. stocking and I was like, wow, I don't ever remember my dad ever stuffing my mom's stocking. And I was like, that's so shitty. And we were talking about it. And my mom just sent us a picture last week of like all of her Christmas decorations. And she has all of her stockings up there. And I'm like, oh, that's because they never gave themselves stockings. Yeah. So it was just Morgan or Mitchell Marley, Morgan Marshall. Yeah. So anyway, I don't really know where I'm going with this. Oh, yes, I do. So Aaron and I have stockings. Okay. And it's his responsibility to stop stuff mine. You're well, not even going to be here on Christmas. Well. I, we do it like the week of. Oh, so okay. like at some point this week, he is supposed to stuff my stocking. Okay. So today, actually yesterday, I stuff. I can't even talk. I stuffed Aaron's stocking, mm-hmm. and they're like sock stocking. So you can clearly see that they are weighing down. Yeah. Like and they're not in its form anymore. Yep. And that there's slim jims hanging out of the top of yeah, it. Yeah, of course you can tell when there's stuff in a stocking. Exactly. This motherfucker goes all day yesterday, all day today, and I like even sat on the couch today and just watch tv and i'm like do you notice anything what i'm like i stuffed your stocking yesterday after work yesterday oh i had no idea i'm like what do you mean he's like what did i get i said where's my stocking yeah you don't get to open yours so you get me one and he was like well ollie's doing it then oh. we agree on that ollie's doing it fair anyway that's it aaron got his stocking didn't even fucking notice for two days and now I guess my dog is expected to stock <laughs> stuff mine. I mean, and Logan don't even have stockings. The girls do, but we don't. I love stockings. Yeah. Been up there was stockings. numerous years where we would come down and like before our parents. And that's the only thing that you could open until your parents got there. Was really? Your, sto- your stocking. I wasn't allowed to leave my fucking room until parents woke up. So there was a couple years when we went down there and we were like so excited and we we're walking down the steps and our stockings are empty. And... Mitchell or Marley would have to like run to my mom and be like, hey, mom, stockings are empty. And she'd come down with like big Walmart bags and be like, sorry, Santa forgot to do this. <laughs> he left him in he left him in the bedroom. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, that's hilarious. Fine. No, but, yeah. I But you know what I did find the other day on Etsy? 
because I, okay here's the thing with me and the stockings that i currently have so we used i thought we had an m and n and an o because we had for ofi i mean for mila and nona we had an m and an n the like little tiny ones from mm-hmm. target and we always put them like a little fucking catnip treat in there right and we let them we put it on the ground and we see whose dumbass figures it out first. It takes yeah. them four fucking days. It's like Aaron trying to find out his dog. Aaron is stuff. the cat. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's Aaron has happening. catnip in it. And <laughs> his has got catnip in it. So anyways, I like put like catnip treats and shit in there. But anyways, with, with Mila and Nona, we had the cute ones that had like the M and the N. And I vividly remember when we got Ophi, we were coming home because we, we got her on Christmas Eve and we didn't come home until... We, we didn't bring her to Knoxville until the 20, 25th or 26th even. I don't remember. Like the night of Christmas or the next day. Mm-hmm. And um, that day I went to Target to get her a cat bed and like her a cat bowl and all the things. And they had an O stocking on sale. Mm-hmm. because it was after christmas and i vividly remember buying it and i vividly remember it hanging up there yeah until new year's when we took it down i can't find a single picture of, that i took of that entire room Glitch. in that time frame i cannot find the stocking anywhere i found mila and nona's cannot find ofis and both me and logan are convinced because i remember when i put it up i was like M N O, it's so perfect because that's what made me decide to name her ophelia yeah Anyways, I'm pissed about it. And maybe you had one even before her because Ollie. (laughs) No, I really do wonder. Like, I feel like it wasn't a big deal. Like, for me, I was like, I had it already. Like, I that, and I remember being like, I love the MNO. I can't find it anyway. So I actually had to go get our old ones from 204, the gray fluffy ones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had those in a box and I put them up and I hung those up. But I want for this house, I want to get some really beautiful vintage ones that have our names on them. Yeah. And I want to get the too, knitted like ones. Ago. I found some on um, Etsy, but they were so expensive this year. Yeah. I'm going to just wait until I think I have children. Yeah. And then I can start. Get cute ones. Get cute ones. Because I don't want them to not match. That's what happened with my mom and my dad and me. Like when it was just us three versus when it was Lola and Phoebe in the picture. Mm-hmm. The fuck? They literally we couldn't find the same like person yeah. to make because they were custom. Ones. Luckily, everybody's got a cricket nowadays, so Monogrammed. you can always get yeah we can buy them bl- plain. Well, I also have been thinking about going and getting my sewing machine out of storage. There she is. There we're back. We're back. But you don't need your kit anymore. No. Did I, I ever give you that back? I thought you did. I don't know where it's at. I think I did. I, I remember think whenever we were it. moving all our stuff, I mm-hmm. said, here it is. You brought it over it. to me. I don't know. It, I bet it's in the closet from hell. I bet it's either in the closet or in the garage. In the garage or in Aaron's, one of the places that Aaron's stuff is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like one of those things that's hidden. I don't know where the hell that thing is. But the only reason I really want to start, like, I want to sew something. <laughs> you want to crochet. Uh, I want to start crocheting. W- remember, we did that. Were, wait, were you a part of that? I think that you was didn't be a part of that trail. movement. I loved it. I got rid of. I gave them all to Susie and the kids um, because they crochet. They got tons of it. They got tons of it. I gave well, them four boxes full of yarn and stuff. But I, st- I saw a video of someone doing it last night, and I was like, "Fuck, I would love to do that again." But I just want to make a big knit blanket based off the weather pattern. That or I want to make a quilt. I want to myself make a quilt and 
it's going to be a bitch and a half, but I want to yeah. do it. And I want to make my own fabric. <laughs> so okay. we're getting out of hand now. Now but, we've pushed it, yeah. You know, and I'm yeah. never going to do that, but I would like to. It would be ideal for me. I've never been a good sewer. Me I made one pillow and... I don't even think I've ever made anything. I mean... And like home ec. I was losing my shit when I used to crochet and I made my pap Did that blanket. Did you guys blanket. have a sewing class in middle school? Um, I think we had home and econ, but um, it they literally like had like 15 rows of washers and dryers and shit. And, like you had to care on a baby. And my mom was like, you're not fucking doing that. You know how to do that. And I was like, okay. Oh, ours was like a requirement, but it, we didn't have washers and dryers. We had like mini kitchen sets, mm-hmm. you know, and then... The other room was just straight sewing machines. We made like pillows and God, they put you guys to work. What did, did you get to keep? Is is well, Western Pennsylvania the women? They stay home. They cook. Yeah, they, they have clean. you in the fucking wool mill. Like I know you're out there like making your own wool. I think I you're still like still have mine. It. And Aaron still has his stupid pillow too. I think his is a dice. Good one. Good one. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that was very creative. What are you a CEO of? Oh, I'm the CEO of last minute Christmas shopping. I'm also the CEO of that and I still haven't done it. No, I literally yeah. sat in my car before I walked in here and ordered Aaron's gift yeah. and hoping that it comes on Saturday, but it's going to be me tracking down the UPS truck again. Yeah. No, nowhere. Yeah. Okay. Let's hop into it. All right. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up and let's get Creepy. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're doing something really different today. Not too different. It's not like so (laughs) fucking different, but it was not what we were planning on doing at all. Basically, we had a whole thing where it was going to be a normal episode, but I did the thing again, you know, where... The rabbit hole. The rabbit hole. The spiral. And I can't stop myself, but it's because of this case and I'm mind blown about it. I want to have a long conversation about it. Mm -hmm. So I called Morgan whenever I realized like how far into this case I was getting and I had so much and I basically was like, yo, I can either do a two-parter, one in 2023, one in 2024, or I can take this episode and we move yours over because hers is more aligned with the the next episode of the year yeah one 171 so i was like let's is this not 171 no this is 170 did I you say 171 in the i did <laughs> good deal <laughs> i didn't even catch it clearly i was over here in my own fucking head um we decided to let me basically do a takeover a crime takeover of this mainly because this case is shocking it's a case that's very different from what we're normally covered but what caught my eye even more so about this case was who and who had not covered it I had never heard of it before which blew my mind so I knew it wasn't in my circle of my regular rotation Mm -hmm. so I had to kind of go digging for it because I found it on an article talking about like any true crime case that has like a strong call to action that's what I was looking for I came across this one immediately started searching for a podcast that I could listen to to just get me familiar with what the case is because I never heard of it and there were very few and far between like not the big main creators that you would expect to have an episode about this they don't have one that's weird there are some for a reason i don't know there are some i think that this case is just truly like hidden like i think it is just one of those cases that 
is almost too complex and mm-hmm. too big that it seems challenging and something that you don't know if you can fit into a, a script mm-hmm. and it's kind of all over the place but that's literally like our specialty for sure so i was like it's the definition of that's the definition crimes. of crazy and crime so i'm like we can get this shit done and i couldn't stop like i could not stop myself i went down every single rabbit hole i read until three in the morning on articles and books and police reports and files that have been released over the years so I'm going to cover this a little different than I typically would cover a a case like this excited I know I'm very excited too and the reason why I'm covering it this way is because I want you guys to be like thinking with us so this is the case of the disappearance of 31 year old Joan Risch who was a wife and mother living in Lincoln Massachusetts just outside of Boston in 1961 what's an old case it's 62 years old and it's unsolved that's crazy that 1960s was six years ago i know that's crazy well is that right yeah yeah it sure is this case to this day is unsolved and she has never been declared legally dead oh wow so the, the okay let's go into it and i'm not i don't want to seem like i'm excited i'm not excited it's just that I really do think that if more people talked about this, something would come of it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's be those people. Let's be those people, guys. Get your thinking caps on. (sighs) All right. And the reason why we initially decided that I was going to tell you guys what the blurb of the case was is because I want you guys to be listening, like paying attention, using like hindsight is 2020 type things so we can bring different things to the table. Okay. So in the town of Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston, on Tuesday, October 24th, 1961, 31-year-old Joan Risch woke up at 6.30 a.m. with her husband, Martin Risch, to kiss him goodbye. As he had to leave early in order to catch his 8 a.m. flight from Logan Airport to New York City for a business trip where he would have to stay overnight for one night in Manhattan. Martin and Joan were really used to this because it was a normal occurrence in Martin's field. The young couple had just moved to Lincoln six Six months prior with their two children, Lillian, who was four years old, and David, who was two, from Ridgefield, Connecticut. This was a pretty big move for them, but especially for Joan because of having two children, having to be alone with them throughout the entire day because her husband worked having long hours. No help. No help, knowing no one. And he had to go on business trips a lot, so he was gone. And it's terrifying yeah, as a mother. Yeah, and this is even prior to not the move. Not that we're mothers, but I can imagine. Not that terrifying. we're mothers, but like I can agree that that yeah. is something that's terrifying. But even prior to the move, like this was a lot, but at least in Ridgefield, Connecticut, like she still had her village with her. Like she loved Ridgefield. Moving to Lincoln, where they knew basically no one was incredibly intimidating, but Joan worked swiftly from the time that they arrived in April of 1961 to make friends and get really involved within her community. The home that they chose to purchase and live in was a bit hidden from the hustle and bustle, sitting pretty far back off of the road and relatively private as neighboring homes were a good distance apart yet semi-visible to each other. And I have you guys maps and photos of all along with on our Instagram, which are going to be extremely helpful. That is exactly what they wanted for their children, a quiet place where they could safely play out in the yard and it was quiet away from scariness of cities. However, for a stay-at-home mother, this was pretty isolating. 
Luckily for Joan, she was really good at making friends and picking good ones. So it didn't take her too long to become besties with all of her neighbors, but specifically one named Barbara Barker, who lived directly across the street. Barbara and Joan got along very well. They were a similar age. Their kids were the same age. And the only downfall about their relationship with them being neighbors was the single road that separated their homes because they were across the street neighbors. This was Old Bedford Road. Like I said, both of their homes sat pretty far back off the road with winding long driveways. So they only had partial view of each other's houses, but it was almost necessary for them to be back that far because of just how busy this road was and it scared the shit out of Joan to think about. So wait, wait, wait. The road was curvy? The driveways were curvy? The driveways were like long and they... Back off the road. Yeah, because it went off the road. So it wasn't necessarily like hilly or anything, but there were woods around and trees and it was just farther back. So if you were at a certain position on either property... You could probably see a light on Mm -hmm. in the house. You could see like a little bit of the house, but never like a full view. You could either see the driveway and so on and so forth. So that old Bedford Road, which separated her and Barbara's house really like stressed her out it was very very busy because it went straight out onto route 2a which is also called the north great road also <laughs> this is my hilarious my hand drawn map, map. just whips out yeah so <laughs> i've been sketching th- this case yeah theirs is the one with the star and this is gonna be the one that you guys see as well so the joan rich's rich's house is the one with the star barbara's directly across the street okay So Joan didn't want the kids to ever think it would be okay for them to cross that road. Like ever, even if it was to play, even if they looked both ways, she never, and neither did Barbara. So they very rarely, if ever, would walk across to each other's properties. They would always just drive across Mm -hmm. each other to each other's properties. Now, despite all of this, though, Joan and Martin were really loving their new home, their community, and their friends. And not long after Martin left that morning on October 24th, Joan woke up Lillian and David. She cooked breakfast, ate with them, got everyone ready for the day, and then Next, she quickly took David over to Barbara's house so that she could go run some errands. And she and Lillian both had dentist appointments in Bedford that day. Barbara held David and waved goodbye to them as they pulled out of her driveway in their 1951 blue Chevrolet sedan. And Joan and Lillian got to their 9.30 a.m. appointments at the dentist on time. Lillian had her cleaning and Joan had a cavity filled. At this point, this was almost a weekly occurrence for Joan, literally, because she had only moved there in April and immediately got this recommendation from her college friend, Sabra, or some people say it differently, but I know a girl that was named Sabra spelling her name like this. I know a girl named Sabra, S-A-B-R-A. Yeah, how do, what do other people say? Sabra? Sabra. Sabra. Is what other people say. I call her Sabra. For, um, so she called her friend from college who actually lived in this area and asked like, who's your dentist? I need a dentist. Mm-hmm. And Sabra gave her Dr. Goodstein. Can you, pause, can mm-hmm. you imagine getting cavities filled in, in the, the 60s? 1960s? No. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know what it was like. Those was that the needles. day that they just learned? Like, was that the literal year that they learned about teeth care? Because it was like around I have that no time. Idea, but that is terrifying. Terrifying. So since she moved there and started seeing him in April of 1961, it's October. She had had 11 cavities filled with Doctor Goodstein. Oh wow! Because again, like the teeth, oral care, dental care was so new, and it still was like rapidly developing Mm -hmm. and learning to be more of like a permanent like 
not permanent fix, but a better sealant and fix for cavities. And yet companies still, some employers still don't give dental insurance. Exactly. Crazy. So it goes crazy like that. Anyway, she had gotten 11 cavities filled. So this is literally a weekly occurrence for her. She chatted with Dr. Goldstein about how she was doing, about her house how she's liking her neighbors how she's loving Lincoln how Martin's going out of town before she scheduled another appointment the following week for another cavity and they left they quickly ran over to a shop where Joan bought herself a brand new bra and some clothes for the kids specifically I think she bought like two things for David and maybe just a little something while because Lillian was there with her in person (laughs) and then lastly they ran into the grocery store to grab some things Joan and Lillian returned to Barbara's to pick up David at approximately 11:15 a.m. Joan and Barbara then chatted for a little bit standing outside for usual just laughing and talking about their day and like catching each other up to speed as fast as they possibly could before one of their kids interrupted and they had to go home. Well, that eventually happened. So Joan then put her kids in their car in her car and drove across the street back to their home. I was always that kid. Yeah. You're That's it. Wrap it up. Let's go, mom. Oh, I never was. I was over there being like, so tell me more. No, I was like, can we go? <laughs> You're so bad. You still do that. I know. Oh, God. I hate conversation. You do. It's so have crazy because we literally have a fucking podcast. <laughs> so um, jo- Joan, Lillian, and David all go back across the street to their house. Once there, Joan collected the mail and the milk that had been delivered. Mind-blowing. Literally, milk was milkman. That's nuts. That's nuts. It had been delivered while they were gone, so she picked it up and got the kids inside. Now, how there are differing accounts on if we know for sure that she got the milk. We don't know for sure diff- because of different accounts if she actually got the mail. Okay. Because then she would have had to walk all the way down to the end of the driveway. So if she didn't stop and get it when she was crossing over, then. But the milkman came to the front door. The milkman dropped it off at the front door. Okay. Which she picked up. Right after they got inside, the dry cleaner delivery service man came to pick up Martin's suits, which was like a normal thing. And he waited inside the front door, so like inside the house. He knew them well at this point. While Joan went and collected all the suits and gave them over to him. And they just like chatted, said said their goodbyes, and he left. Finally, when he was gone and everyone was gone and Joan was done with her shit for the morning, Joan finally was able to go put on her not-so-formal clothes because it's the 60s so this is what she picked to hang around her house in um a blue house dress and white sneakers that was her comfy fit (sighs) can you imagine can you imagine if we live back there oh my gosh imagine if we time travel to the 60s and we show up in platform uggs sweatpants and a hoodie i'm like what's up be like you are going to hell barbara yeah what do you do you are you a drifter that's what they would think we were yeah immediately or witch even worse for sure a witch so anyways, she changed into her comfy clothes, which was a blue house dress and white sneakers. And I think she had like a little bit of a, a a white or cream. Some accounts said that she had a white or cream sweater over top. Mm-hmm. And you, wait, you know that dress had the oh skirt yeah insert. Yeah, it was a cute. It was a puffy. It, I would wear it to Sunday school, you know, nowadays. And she was like, these are my sweatpants. That's crazy. <laughs> so... Uh, then she fed the kids lunch. She ate lunch. She laid David down for his afternoon nap, which always went from noon to 2 p.m. Like David was clockwork on that shit. 
At a boy. At 1 p.m., Barbara brought over her son, Douglas, because Joan and Lillian were outside as Joan was working in the yard. And Lillian and Douglas were the exact same age, and they played together at this time every day during David's mm-hmm. nap time. So Joan was outside working in the yard. Barbara brought Douglas over. They played. As Douglas and Lillian played, with David napping upstairs in the home, Joan was in and out. She was pruning plants. She was messing around in the yard before she put her shears up in the garage. And just before David woke Woke up at 1.55 p.m. He wakes up at 2. Joan goes and gets Lillian and Douglas, holds their hands, walks them across the street, across Old Bedford Road to Barbara's house, along with Lillian's tricycle. All she says once they get over to, like, his playset area at Barbara's house was, I'll be back before walking across the street back to her house. However, she did not tell Barbara, who was inside the house that the kids were just dropped off at that she had done this therefore barbara had no idea that the two four-year-olds were at her house in her possession at the moment which was so out of character for joan Mm -hmm. like something she would never do because a she's scared as hell of that busy street and doesn't ever want the kids to think that they can walk across it right it wasn't until barbara saw the two of them outside playing and asked them hey what's going on that you get here that she even knew what happened and basically Lillian and Douglas were like mom walked over and said that she'd be right back and she went back home and I feel like she sorry what is it Joan 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 I want to call her Joanne I feel like Joan also would all she was clearly transparent she was a good fucking mother yeah she would walk up at least knock on the door kids are out i gotta go yeah like David woke up early there was clearly something urgent that she couldn't even do that right that she just immediately picked up shit walked him across didn't even knock on the door didn't even call when she got back to the house to let barbara know yeah like that could have been even faster if anything it wasn't until barbara saw the two of them and asked them what the hell happened that she even knew that they were out there and that wasn't until approximately 2 15 p.m how many minutes 20 was minutes that? 20 minutes they've been outside at this point barbara had gotten the kids inside both lillian and douglas and she just kept them because she was like you know this isn't like joan maybe something happened Mm-hmm. Or maybe I missed it. Maybe she did knock on the door and I missed her and the door was locked. Who knows? Yeah. But still, she was like, you know, you you would take the kids with you. Well, yeah. But you know that I would be like, what the fuck? I, I would call you. Like, you just left them outside. Yeah. Morgan, like, what the fuck happened? It better be something good. Yeah. You know, I, a good story to tell me. I would be mad. I would be like, why would you leave them outside after you walked them across the street? I thought we agreed to never do that. Right. You know, like it. But if you were like, I started throwing up or, you know, David had a massive blowout. It was everywhere. I was overwhelmed. I was just running back. He was squalling in his crib. I didn't want to get him out until I could go give him a bath. And I wasn't going to be able to watch a kid. So I just threw him over there. I I meant to call you. I'm sorry. But he was just losing his shit. I would not care. Yeah. But if you never communication, no communication, breaking every rule that you set, every boundary. So, you know, Barbara's pissed. So Barbara gets the kids inside and she's like, what do y'all want to do? And like talking to them again, this is around the time of 2 15 PM. And she hears a sound come from Joan. She knew it was Joan's voice the second she heard this sound and it was like a shouting sound it wasn't a scream more like a disciplinary or stern and loud voice as if she was getting onto a kid and the only thing that Barbara could see because again she's inside the house looking through the window at Joan's house was that she could see Joan strangely like rushing around her driveway she wasn't sprinting but like more so like quickly and determined walking mall walking she was wearing what looked like 
a her tan trench coat that went all the way down to the ground over her blue house dress and she was walking very quickly up her drive driveway from her car to the garage but the reason that outside of the noise that this caught Barbara's eye and she kept watching was because of how erratic and unusual Jones movements were but also she kept getting a glance of this color of the color red just like in front of Joan. It looked like she was walking with her arms outstretched, bent over, chasing something that was red and low to the ground. Barbara assumed that David had left a car in the toy and she went to go get it and dropped it when she was walking back in and was picking it up. Or maybe she had put a new shirt that she put on David that was red on him Mm -hmm. and he was walking down the driveway so she went to go run and grab him. Okay. But also between 2 and 3 p.m., four other women also reported hearing shouting coming from Joan's house. Just one shout. These women were playing bridge at Jeanette Swartz. Swartz? Schwartz? Swartz. S-W-A-R-T? Yeah, I can never Swart. Swartz. Swart. No, S-Z at the end. Swartz. Swartz. Yeah, Swartz. Swartz house, which was right behind, like not behind, but right beside Barbara's house. You can see it on here. Like her property kind of wraps around Barbara's. Okay. Yeah. So Jeanette had a bunch of girls over playing bridge. And she is right beside Barbara's house across the street from Jones. They hear between 2 and 3 p.m. a shout coming from Jones' side. However, the women could not agree on what exactly it was that they thought they heard. They all heard it, but they couldn't put their finger finger on it. One said that it was a baby cry. Another said that it was definitely a cat. Then the other one was like, it's a woman. And they just kind of went back and forth with this. At 3.40 p.m., Barbara put Lillian and her kids into her car and she drove across the street to Jones. She got Lillian out of the car and she watched her as she walked inside of the side door, shutting it behind her before driving out of the driveway and into town to go pick up something with her kids from the shop. So she didn't confirm that Joan was in there, but she saw that Lillian went in and this is normally what they did. You know, she, her car was in the driveway. She knows Joan's home. She just fucking saw her. her. Yeah. So that was at 3.40 p.m. But... When Barbara returns home at 4.15 p.m., so just 20, 40 minutes later, Lillian came across the street to Barbara's house. Barbara was like, hi, what, what's going on? And Lillian said, quote, mommy is gone. The kitchen is covered in red paint. And David is crying in his crib because he needs a diaper change. Oh, my God. And Barbara's like, What? Where's your mom? And she said she wasn't at home when you dropped me off. So Lillian explained that she came home when Barbara took her over there. She walked upstairs. She looked around the house. She couldn't find her mom. David was sleeping. A few minutes later, David wakes up and he's squalling and crying and he's got a dirty diaper. And so Lillian, who was playing with her toys right beside the crib, tried to like help him, but she couldn't. So then she went out into the yard. She walked around the house. She couldn't find her mom. She was scared to death. David's crying this entire time. She goes across the street looking for Barbara. She finally sees Barbara pull back in and then she goes and tells Barbara. It's been 40 minutes. That's terrifying. Terrifying. For a four-year-old, dude. Holy shit. Barbara 
takes Lillian and her kids inside and then she walks across the street to Jones to see what is going on because this is two weird things after another. Mm -hmm. Joan just randomly drops them off in the yard, doesn't tell her anything. And now the four-year-old's back in her and she's missing. Exactly. Barbara walks across the street. She's very concerned and she thinks that maybe Joan is just working outside and she missed Lillian when Lillian was yelling for her or something. But she knew Joan had to be there because her car was in the driveway. However, she soon discovered that Lillian was telling the truth. There was no sign of Joan. The house was in absolute disarray. David was squalling from his crib upstairs. And that red paint that Lillian said was in the kitchen was blood. Shit. Barbara screamed out for Joan several times, but there was no response or sign of her anywhere in the house. Get that baby, get that baby. All right, so now we're switching over to my handwritten notes. That's how, guys, that's how mad scientist I went on this shit. I have a timeline in my hand. She has a timeline in her hand. I can't wait. And a hand-drawn map. Do you still have that or do I have that? You have it. You keep this. You need that. Okay. Joan Carolyn Bard was born as the only child to Josephine and Harold Bard on May 12th, 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. They were a lower middle class family who moved back and forth between Brooklyn and Chicago for good jobs, good paying jobs. Sometime before Joan was eight years old, they moved to Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. And she went to like the first new new school that she had ever been to because prior to this, she'd only switched back and forth from Chicago and Brooklyn. She was described to be very quiet, private, very kind, super intelligent, and just like a little girl who loved reading. And a lot of people, when I say private, I want to like emphasize that because a lot of people talk about how she wasn't one to like let people into her life. Like everything was fine all the time Mm -hmm. type of girl. Nonetheless, like she was a really good girl. She had little friends, but she was never going to go like put herself out there. In 1939, when she was only eight years old, her parents and German Shepherd dog all died in a suspicious yet accidental house fire that was started by a faulty lamp. Now, what was suspicious about it was that her father, Harold, was found lying on the ground in the home holding on to the phone, but he died of inhalation. Her mother, Josephine, was found in her robe on the couch asleep with like solitaire cards in front of her as if she had fallen asleep while playing the card game. And she also died of smoke inhalation. And then their dog is what the biggest thing is. So this was a trained guard dog. It was very protective. It was trained to be like that. They lived in some not so great areas at some Mm -hmm. points and he was there to be their security system. So there's two different accounts on where this dog was found. The first one is that the dog was found wrapped up in a blanket in the like basement or in a closet dead like it had been killed prior to the fire which would make sense to the neighbors because the neighbors said that they never heard the dog barking at all so someone went after that so someone went after them the other version of the story is that the dog was found sleeping at the end of joan's bed where it slept every single night passed away again no one heard barking it didn't move it didn't go try to help them that doesn't happen with you typically right. if a dog passes away and especially a guard dog or a German shit like a dog like that a big dog if a dog like that passes away in a fire it's because they literally can't get out yeah it's not because they didn't wake up their owners or they didn't do something to get the owners awake they the dogs also are normally near their owners mm-hmm. whereas in both of these accounts the dog is completely separate from both Harold and Josephine now luckily thankfully Joan at eight years old was having a sleepover with her grandmother that night 
sad. That's fucking tragic. Yeah. And they just ruled it as accidental. They like didn't really look into it, but everyone knew something was off about it. Unfortunately, like I said, she was orphaned at eight years old. She was then adopted by her mom's sister, Alice, and her husband, Frank. Now, they lived in New Rochelle, New York, and they had five kids of their own. This is a big change for her. She went from being an only child to now having... One of six. Yeah, one of six at this point, overnight. But it was okay because she was... I'm not the oldest, but like either the same age as one of the oldest but they're they were all very spaced out and frank decided to change her last name from bard to natris like their last name this was something that the rest of the family was not happy about it's not like she really had a choice because she's eight years old but he changed her last name to match all of theirs Mm -hmm. frank was an absolute fuck he was a dick he was super short like fucking small man syndrome psychopath apparently he was the president of his own failing music production studio that eventually failed when Joan was a teen and this caused the family to really 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 struggle to make ends meet making Frank only more stressed making him even more of a dick later Joan many a times alluded to her husband and other family members that around this same time Frank began sexually assaulting her but never said it outright until very much later which we're going to come back to allegedly however it had been long suspected by family and friends that he was doing that which is very unfortunate that no one stepped in to help her or felt safe enough to step in to help her despite her life being as hard as it was even at this young of an age though Joan was incredibly driven she was super happy and positive still quiet and reserved but she was super kind intelligent like gifted level intelligent hardworking, and had lots of friends that had to like beg her to do anything with them because she was like I'm gonna go read like that's her thing (laughs) she graduated from New Rochelle High School and was awarded a scholarship to attend Wilson College in Pennsylvania where she graduated in 1952 with honors and a degree in English literature good for her she got a job right out of college working at publishing houses the first one was Harcourt Bryson World and then the second one where she was an editor was Thomas Y. Crowell which are big in New York City big deal yeah that's huge In 1953, Joan's roommate set her up on a blind date with a guy named Martin Risch. At the time, he was studying at Harvard Business School, and she was 23, he was 24. They were it. Intellectually, they had met their match. Sexually, they were very attracted to each Mm -hmm. other. Emotionally, they understood parts of each other because Martin had lost his mom at a really young age. Joan, obviously, had lost both of her parents at a very young age. And separately which is so funny they both went home after their first date and told their like friends and family like that's a person i'm gonna marry stop yeah it was meant to be the couple got married just two years later in 1955 they moved into an apartment in brooklyn and martin got a job at a paper company joan remained in publishing in 1957 joan gave birth to their first child together a daughter lillian after which joan left her career to be a a stay-at-home mother or a homemaker which she was very excited about 
having the opportunity to do because Martin was doing so, so good in business. They were doing the best that they ever could. Joan and Martin were incredibly happy and excited about this amazing life that they were building just almost like effortlessly, but obviously like a lot of effort, but Mm -hmm. it's just like, wow, like it's finally coming. Like I'm getting to reap the rewards of everything that we've done. And it was just falling together amazing. Romantically, professionally, they were thrilled with each other. And with the success in business meant that Martin did have to travel a lot more often for work. So this is where the traveling begins for him. And this was no big deal for Joan because she had her publishing career. She still like did little bits and pieces. And if you work in like arts like this, like you, you'll never, you never leave it. It's here. It's a part of you. Joan was incredibly capable and driven just as she was in that career to be a homemaker, to be a stay at home mother and raise her children. She could handle herself. And she made that very clear to anybody who ever asked her about it. This was a choice that she made and Mm -hmm. she's fucking okay with this because they're making good money. They're loving their lives. They love each other. Let her do her thing. Right. Because I'm sure, you know, people were like, well, how do you feel about him being on business? She's like, I trust him. I don't give a shit. What's wrong yeah. with you? Sounds good to me. Yeah, it sounds fine with bring me. Bring home the dollar bills, Yeah, baby. bring home that money. I love you. Do your thing. In 1958, they moved to a quieter town, which was Ridgefield, Connecticut, to raise their family in a quaint, more quote-unquote country home where they made so many friends. And they were just loved by so many within this community so quickly. When their son David was born in 1959, they were so excited and decided it was time to upgrade their living style in Ridgefield so they accommodated their growing family by getting a super nice home and this one was Joan's favorite because just like not even a mile down this little country dirt path from her house she could walk directly to the library Oh, so it's got everything that she loves. She loves nature walks. Mm -hmm. She loves walking with her kids. She likes getting the hell out the house. She's got a nice house and she loves a library. That's like Jones shit. She was so excited. The happiest she had ever been in her entire life. It had everything that she needed in just like walking distance. Mm -hmm. And plus like all of her best friends live there. I want to live there. I want to move to Ridgefield, Connecticut. How do we get there? Where's that at? What do we need to do? What is your weather like? Um, Cold. Yeah. Let me know. So in 1961, Martin got a promotion, which was incredible, life-changing, what he had been working so hard for all of these years. But unfortunately, though, this good news came with a sad reality. They were going to have to leave Ridgefield, Connecticut, their most loved town and community and friends for Lincoln, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. The couple only knew one single person in Lincoln, and it was Jones College friend, Sabra Morton. However, they were very excited for this new journey and happy that Lincoln was similar to Ridgefield in the way as it was that still small country town feel very affluent very safe and also like close to the city close to work so you got a little bit of everything right and the house that they freaking moved into I I cannot like it's so amazing Morgan has already seen a picture it's two car garage two story it's a white cape style huge beautiful home with a huge yard front and back it's gorgeous like You'll see the pictures on our Instagram. Now I'm going to go back to where we left off. So we're walking back into this house on October 24th, 1961 with Barbara. And I need to give you guys a trigger warning because there throughout the rest of this, we're going to be having lots of conversation about potential 
instances that could happen that have been widely circulated. And these do include discussion of chosen and or unexpected child loss, suicide, disturbing details, and mental health. A lot of mental health that we're going to be talking about throughout this. When Barbara went over to the Rish's house to check on Joan on October 24th, 1961 at 4.15 p.m., she entered through the unlocked side door, per usual. Immediately, the sound of David screaming and crying echoed through the empty home from his crib upstairs. Barbara was instantly taken aback by the absolute disarray throughout the entire home, which was typically incredibly tidy. There was even like a table or a chair that was flipped on its side, and there was a large amount of that red paint that she discovered to be blood in the kitchen. It was on the walls. It was on the floor. There was a trash can that was normally under the sink in the center of the floor. It was filled to the brim with stuff flowing out of it, including the phone and the cord to the landline that's mounted on the wall. It was hanging off the side of the trash can as if it had been hung there. It was sitting beside a carton of beer that was empty, five beer bottles, and two bottles that were empty of Jack Daniels. And there was also what looked to be a paper towel roll covered in and blood in the corner of the kitchen. Barbara began to panic and screamed out for Joan several times over and over again, having to scream over the cries that were coming from David. She looked around the entire downstairs trying to find Joan, but she was not there. Barbara needed to get out of that house and to look for Joan, but she couldn't leave David. She finally built up the courage to go up there where she found him exactly as Lillian had described, alone crying in his crib with a spoiled diaper. She scooped David up as fast as she could and held him closely as she, as fast as she could, went through the entire upstairs, every room, every door, every closet, just looking for Joan. And then out the door, there was no sign of her. Barbara ran across the street to her house where she grabbed her phone and called their other neighbor, Joan's other close friend, Jane Butler. And she asked if, almost like, please, like, tell me that Joan is with you. Is Joan with you? Is she okay? Now, Jane is immediately like, no, she's not with me. What's going on? Barbara barely says half of what's gone on. Jane's already out the door across the street helping her. So they lay the kids down, David, Lillian, Douglas, and then Barbara's other kid. They put them in the house and then together, Jane and Barbara go across the street to check on Joan. Together, they entered the Rish's home and they were scared for their lives but also for Joan. Mm -hmm. Barbara reminded Jane just before they walked in, like, hey, if we don't find her in here, we have to call the police. So we need to not touch or mess up anything. We just need to look for her and then we need to get out. Quickly, they searched every single room in the house once again, but there was no sign of Joan. The only place that they had not searched was the cellar, which they were scared to do because there was like a table or a chair that had been knocked over and it was blocking it. Finally, they built up the courage together to just move that damn table and go search the cellar, but there was nothing down there. All of this took place within 15 minutes. Everything from the time that Lillian came over to Barbara's. This is in 15 minutes. That's neighborhood watch, ladies. That's neighborhood watch. So together, Barbara and Jane rush across the streets to their homes. Barbara goes into hers where she calls the Lincoln Police Department. Jane goes to hers where she starts calling Martin's work to try and get a hold of Martin in Manhattan. Barbara's call goes out at 4.33 p.m. reporting this to the police. Five minutes later, a Lincoln police officer arrives at Barbara's home to take her report and then go search Joan's house. The officer searched through the house and found several other drops and smears of blood throughout it 
other than the kitchen. From his training and his experience, the first thing that he thought had happened here was a suicide. When he couldn't find Joan's body, he got even more concerned because you can't commit suicide and then hide your body. Right. At 4.50 p.m., so he had been searching since 4.30. He'd been searching for about 12 minutes at this point. He realizes that she's nowhere to be found. They're wasting daylight, and they need to have a search party out there to search the premises immediately. So he dispatches the entire police department to the scene to aid in a search of the, of the home and surrounding areas for Joan, while others gathered evidence and interviewed the neighbors about the last time they saw Joan. And so here are the potential sightings that investigators were able to join together, and I'm going to have a timeline for you guys on our Instagram Morgan's is handwritten scary but this is what I'm kind of going through right now at 2:45 p.m. someone called the Lincoln Police Department reporting a young woman who looked to be in her 30s walking west on route 2a now the map in the photos will show you that this is the road that old Bedford comes to just to the left of the Rish's house she can walk like 300 yards and be on route 2a the woman that this person saw and reported looked to be quote walking aimlessly hunched over as if she was cold she didn't look dirty but not put together she was wearing a gray knee-length coat that was loose fitting and a wife scarf or kerchief tied at her chin over her head the location that this woman said she saw the walking woman was 300 yards from Joan's house which would be a three to four minute walk from the house and the description matched Joan other than the fact that this woman saw a gray knee-length coat, mm -hmm. which Barbara last saw her in a tan trench coat, which goes all the way to the ground. Somewhere between 3.15 and 3.30 p.m., a witness named Eleanor called in reporting another woman who also resembled Joan walking north in the median of Route 128, which is like four, which was at this point in time a four-lane interstate. And it had Holy like 75,000 cars that went on this thing daily. It was a full-blown working interstate. It was busy. Yeah, they had cars here. We know that. You don't walk on that. You way. don't walk on that. And she was in the median. So she had crossed two lanes to get mm -hmm. into the median and was walking north near the Winter Street exit, saying that she was, quote, a young woman wearing a gray coat that went to her knees with a white scarf or kerchief tied around her head at her chin, covering her head and the sides of her face with, quote, disheveled hair on her forehead. She was dazed, walking with her head down, stomping around in the median while holding her stomach as if she was carrying something. But this was the thing that got Eleanor to call. The woman's legs. They were covered in blood flowing down them from underneath her knee-length coat. And this was about five to six miles away from the Rish's home. At 3.25 p.m., the Kings, who are neighbors, their daughter, Virginia, was walking home from her bus stop on Old Bedford Road when she saw an unknown blue or gray, possibly 1954 Plymouth sedan or 1956 Oldsmobile sedan that she had never seen before at the end of the Rish's driveway, like parked there facing towards the house. And it was very, very dirty. Confirming this was a woman named Hilda who lived just like a few streets down off of Old Bedford. She said that she was driving down Old Bedford at 3.40 p.m. heading towards Route 2A when she stopped to let that same blue 1954 Plymouth back out 
of the Rish's driveway onto the road and then drive the opposite way as her from two ways, so heading north. At 4.25 p.m., another witness reported seeing a woman walking south on the west side of Route 128 near the Tripolo or Tripello road exit who looked to be about 35 years old wearing a gray knee-length coat and a white scarf tied at her chin wrapped around her head and she had what looked to be dark mud covering her legs. This location was four miles from the Rish's house. And what's interesting about this is compared to the first report that came in about the woman walking on the median of 128 at 315 to 330 from that Eleanor girl, this is about an hour later. And now she's She's on the other side of the road walking the opposite direction. So she has crossed now four lanes of traffic and is walking down this area. And the area that she was specifically walking had a lot of construction because at this point in time, the government or the state was expanding Route 128 from a four lane to an eight lane road. So there was tons of construction on the side. Yeah. Now, there were also other people that claimed to have like seen and talked to Joan that day. One being Lillian saying that mom wasn't there from the time that Barbara dropped her off at 340 till when she returned at 415. The other one was the milkman who dropped off everything. Granted, Joan was not home when he dropped it off, but nothing looked off to him. There was not another car in the driveway. No cars were in the driveway. No cars were in the garage. Everything looked normal. The postal man said the exact same thing. The guy that came and picked up the dry cleaning, he said that she was in great spirits. They had a great conversation. Nothing was weird. There was no one else in the yard or anywhere. And then also Sabra Morton, her college friend, had talked to her that morning because the day before, they, I guess, Joan had been watching Sabra's son and Sabra came to pick the her son up but Joan was in a really big rush and like couldn't talk which is unlike Joan Joan typically would sit there and gab it up with her girlfriends Mm -hmm. so she was in a really big rush so the next morning Sabra called Joan which was on the morning of October 24th the day she went missing she talked to Joan and she said hey I was just wondering why you were in a rush yesterday I didn't get to ever follow up with you on that and Joan was like I can't really talk right now I'm still in a really big rush it was nothing big though I'll call you back later hung up with her that was before they even went to the dentist appointment so she's been in a rush for two days now which Sabra was like that is not like Joan at that's all. That's me. That's you. If I was acting like you. Yeah. You'd be like, something's wrong. She's mad at me. That's I'm sure what Sabra was thinking. Like, yeah. is she mad at me? What's going on? Martin was finally able to be reached by the Massachusetts State Police via his company at like 11 p.m. at night through the NYPD, like going to find his hotel and get him, which... I can't even imagine imagine this right now. They finally get a hold of him at 11 p.m. that night and they get him on the next flight home at 1 a.m. His alibi was fully confirmed by his co-workers, business associates, the hotel, the airplane staff, all the records. Plus, police determined that he had no motive or cause to want to harm Joan in any way, shape, or form. No one could even imagine that Joan would have ever harmed herself or anyone would want to harm her. After an intense search was performed of the home, the surrounding woods, the yard, the area, all these places where these potential sightings were, there was nothing that got them closer to Joan. Not a single thing. They called all the hospitals. They called the jails. They called everywhere within like a four four hour radius, essentially. Nothing. Could not find her. Something was very wrong, but also extremely strange and something that police had never, ever seen before. This is what they found in the Rish's home when they searched it on October 24th, 1961. As I said before, the majority of the blood was concentrated in the kitchen of the home. Though I've given you a brief little explanation about what was there and what they did find there, I want to go into the details of it. 
So we're going to start in the kitchen. There was a small overturned table or chair looking situation that sat underneath the phone against the wall. It had been flipped over and like pushed out into the dining room area. There was a small but overflowing trash can in the floor that was in the center of the floor. And inside of it were five empty beer cans and a carton of beer that was Miller High Life, which when Martin saw this, he was like, that's not what we drink. That's not our beer. We don't like that beer. And they were like, well, did anyone bring it over? And he's like, we had friends over the night, two nights before, but no one brought anything like no one brought Miller High Life we didn't have it hidden around the house it's not our beer right then the two empty Jack Daniels bottles which Martin explained that that night him and Joan had gotten a little drunk drunk before his business trip and they finished off one of the bottles and the other one was supposed to be for either the weekend before they had had that weekend the party that they had the weekend before or maybe a weekend upcoming I couldn't find like clarity on it some of it went back and forth so it could have been from that weekend and there was only a little bit left so they married the bottles those bottles were theirs were theirs beer not theirs beers was not and the empty beer cans were also Miller High Life yeah okay yep next the The phone and the cord was hanging on the side of the trash can. It had been very forcefully ripped from its place on the wall. And then there was a broken plastic hanger. Now, typically, this trash can was underneath the sink. And when Martin saw this, like the scene of this, they were like, is this typical for her to do? Like, just throw it out in the middle so she can, you know, throw shit away when she's cleaning up. And Martin was like, fuck no. Fuck no. That trash can is not allowed to leave from underneath the sink. This is crazy. Something's wrong. Like, this is the thing that he was like, that's my wife's pet peeve. Something's wrong. Mm -hmm. She was on top of his ass and her own ass taking out this trash because she hated when it was, like, overflowing and looked nasty. And it sure as hell would never be in the middle of the room. And it sure as hell would never be in the middle of the room. Now, here's the here's me like giving like a plain devil's advocate of some sort. But like, you know, there's shit that I do that I don't allow Logan and I to have done when he's out of town, Mm -hmm. you know, so she could have been like just burning it at both ends that day hungover could have been been cleaning and then you move the trash can in the middle because you're throwing shit she's throwing shit in it she's getting rid of all the stuff from when they had this party so she throws the phone in it exactly yeah she's like fuck this phone phone. maybe sabra was on the phone with her and sabra said some sideways shit not really i'm just kidding sabra i'm not saying that for her but like seriously it could have been anything like there could be, be multiple explanations as to why the thing for me though is that martin was like shook by this trash can you know like that's That's when i'm like that's out of place that something's not right here i hope aaron and logan would be able to pay attention to detail like that logan would be like the house is clean something's wrong i don't have a lot of faith no next on the either counter or on the ground or on that table that was flipped over, just somewhere below the phone, near the phone, with an apron beside it, the telephone book was pulled out, which was not normal. Even more alarming, it was opened on the Lincoln emergency numbers page because back then you didn't have 911. So you had mm-hmm. like literally call the fire department, the police department for an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to do all those things. So that's really concerning because now we know that right before the phone gets ripped out of the wall, she's potentially looking for emergency numbers. That gives you more foul play vibes than than anything. For sure. So next, I'm going to move into like the blood evidence that was found in the kitchen and really it's going to take us throughout and... I, I want to note that when investigators were there, so probably around that 4.55 p.m. timeline of when, like, everyone came, so 
you know, the head detective and everything apart from that original police officer that showed up. When they got there, the majority of the blood had been dried. So in the kitchen, there was a large smeared pool or like arch of blood on the ground that looked as if it had been wiped across. And then also on the walls of the kitchen, it looked as if there had been more blood like smeared across it as if someone was moving with their hand or their like arm against leaning it. Leaning against it, walking. Leaning up against it. And then all of this, but specifically the blood that was in the arch on the ground, looked as if it had been unsuccessfully wiped up with something. They find what these somethings could potentially be. It's these overalls and under pants that belonged to David that she potentially bought that day the things that she got at the store with her bra that day they were in the kitchen sitting on top of a chair and they had blood on them it looked as if they had been used to try and clean or even more specifically like soak up the blood and these overalls had like blood dried into it as if someone had put wheat behind the overalls and like soaked up blood in it like put it in there push it down as as you would if like you spilled something on your carpet okay you know what I mean but this was like a tile is, floor is this what you're talking about yes yes they it had been like soaked up into it and guys I'm also going to link this page that I have Morgan on right now for you it's actually a Pinterest board with like everything that you want to but forewarn you there are crime scene photos with blood in them I, I will be having a few of them on our Instagram post because they're not necessarily like a typical crime scene that I would never post a photo of like this is pretty different so I want you guys to be able to see it I'll link this in the show notes and I'll also have that in our Instagram either way so it looked like they had been like a heavyweight pressed into it onto those overalls next there was some blood that was smeared on the wall beside the side door that was unlocked and below the phone mount there was a six inch square blood stain that had been like smeared down from that on the floor directly below it there was blood streaked across the floor and the bottom parts of the walls leading into the dining room entrance. There was also those paper towels that Barbara saw. Well, investigators determined that that was actually a roll of drawing paper that she had for like the kids or she would put on the table for the kids to color on, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. It had been put on the floor and blood had been soaked into it and maybe that's what this person or Joan tried to clean up with and it just fell apart realizing that it wasn't paper towels, but like why would Joan, knowing what that is, put that down on the ground? Right, exactly. That's really weird. From the kitchen, there were two blood trails that led in different directions the first trail that we're going to follow is inside of the house from the kitchen they found one drop of blood on the first stair going up into the second floor and then two more drops of blood at the top of the stairs each of these were about a quarter of an inch in size there was also another drop of blood on or near a window in the kids bedroom and then in the master bedroom police found eight blood stains or blood stain drops that ranged from an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch in size from the kitchen there was the second trail though that led outside of that side door through the garage and down the driveway to Joan's car her Chevy sedan in Joan's car there was no blood on the outside though there were various blood stains or blood smears a one inch smear on the front left side of the car's hood two one-inch stains or smears on the back right fender, and one two-inch blood stain or pool type of looking situation on the top center 
of Joan's trunk on the back of the car, like on the hood, trunk lid, as if someone had been like sitting up there. But then again, something so weird could be a red herring. There was also a coat hanger sitting on top of the car on its roof. However, that is where all of the blood trails end. There is none that lead down to the road. They all stop at Joan's car and there is still no sign of Joan. The hangers are either like a key to what happened earlier today Mm -hmm. or earlier that day or a red herring. It can go absolutely morbid Mm -hmm. or it could give you the answer. I don't know what I'm thinking right now. We'll get to it here in a little bit because I I have two explanations for them. So we'll get there. Okay. Okay. I think I'm on with those two explanations. Yeah. Now I know that I have been describing this as like a trail of blood that led them both upstairs and then outside of the house. But they it wasn't like a trail that we would typically think of. Not like someone had been drugged or not like bloody footprints. It was more so as if someone had been walking around with like a bloody nose. And this stood out to investigators as really odd talking about the fact that there's no bloody footprints because of just how panicked and fast this scene looked to have been. There's tables flipped over, smears everywhere, shit's left in disarray, like mm-hmm. just craziness. Like she was moving fast, running around. Like it should have like it should have been messier. There should what? have been more blood throughout specifically in a scene like this the only thing that they could think of was that someone came up behind her and hit her over the head with something and they truly were like this had to be a nosebleed yeah this looks like blood coming from the nose walking around someone's house like it's stopping mainly on you but it's throughout the house in different ways but not like being flooded everywhere without you having a tissue without you having a tissue what they said is that if someone was involved in this if foul play is involved in this the fact that there's no bloody footprints or smeared footprints anywhere means that someone had to be either extremely lucky because it was all over the kitchen floor right or they had to be very very careful to not step in it and if we base our thoughts off of what these potential sightings from the witnesses had seen of maybe or maybe not Joan assuming that it was her she would have had blood on her shoes likely on the bottom of them as well as all these people are reporting that she's got something flowing blood or mud or something flowing under her dress down her legs that's what they all described and she's wearing this knee length coat and these white tennis shoes like if it's coming down your legs Morgan if if you wake up you haven't had a period in like 15 years but you know like when you wake up and you started your period and you're like trying to make it to the bathroom and it's running down your leg it's gonna be on your leg you're gonna step on it exactly no matter how careful you're being if you're taking one too hard of a step it's done the thing with that is though is the fact that barbara was adamant that she saw joan wearing her tan trench coat in the driveway at approximately 2 15 when she heard that shout whereas all these reports claim that the woman was wearing a gray loose fitting knee length coat when searching through the home investigators found that the only things missing from joan's home were her number one number two Her gray knee-length coat, her white sneakers, her blue house dress, and one of her many white scarves or kerchiefs that she would put around her head. So they go and they look for that tan coat. Along with that, they were able to confirm what was left behind by Joan, which was almost even more so alarming. That tan coat was found hanging in the closet, the coat closet, and beside it was the empty spot where that gray knee-length coat would have been. They found her purse with her wallet, her ID, and her keys put away in the spot that she always put it when she got home. They found her medication 
and she had severe asthma that would be very diff difficult for her to go without and all of the cash that she had taken out for the time that Martin was going to be gone. It was all still in the house. There were no signs of any weapons of any kind or any weapons at all found in or around the home and there was no way to tell where all of this blood came from or who even. The only thing that they could tell with testing was the type of blood that it was and it was O. And that's everyone essentially at this point right. in time. So they knew that that was Joan's type but they could not confirm it if that it was hers because they didn't have DNA. This is the 60s. So they have no idea if this is Joan's blood or someone else. They didn't know what to do. So investigators started working with the state police forensics unit and determined though this looked like an insane amount of blood because it was so out of place and smeared in different places and throughout the home. In reality, it was only about a half pint of blood that was just spread throughout this entire house and yard. Thus showing that it was not necessarily a life-threatening injury that she had sustained. And, and you might talk about this, but is there any way that, like, whatever happened to the dentist, she had, like, prolonged bleeding or something? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that. Bring that back up, though. I didn't, like, write it down into the notes, but we'll discuss that. And an analysis showed that these smears or stains and drops that were throughout the house and outside were actually more aligned with a person who would be, like, slowly staggering about, supporting themselves after receiving an injury more than an attack of any sort. However, the abruptness and the overturned table and the smears and the franticness that is this scene. And the missing person. Right. And the unsuccessful cleanup situation with no weapon, no person. It, it looks more like there the was a struggle behind. that yeah. took place here. Maybe, it, like they said, maybe she got hit over the head and had a nosebleed because of it, but it wasn't necessarily like a life-threatening injury. So basically, investigators had to consider and investigate both possibilities fully in this. Number one, that this was self-inflicted. Number two, that foul play was involved. Supporting the self-inflicted theory is the fact that there is more evidence pointing to only one person being in this scene or in this house than anything else. But also, there's no footprints. There's no signs of forced entry. The witness reports say that she's walking by herself when they do see her, if that is her. Also, like Barbara across the street, no one pulled in that she saw. And lastly, they brought out hounds, bloodhounds to go and try and pick up her scent because if she's bleeding, she's walking out of the house, she gets on old Bedford, she turns on to, mm -hmm. you know, track that. 2A, they'd be able to track it. But the dogs only could track her scent in the house to the car, down the driveway to Barbara's house, from Barbara's house back to hers. That was it. As if she had gotten into a car. The fuck? So then that means, though, is when she brought over Lillian and Daniel? Douglas. And Douglas, she was bleeding. She would have been bleeding then, but or not because she could have gone back into the house. Something happened because remember, Barbara saw her at 215, about 25 minutes after she took the kids over there with something red driving, wa walking around her car, yeah, chasing something, arms out. Supporting the foul play theory is the chaoticness of this scene and the fact that there is no body or weapon left behind and that Joan would never just leave her kids. She would never just abandon her kids by themselves. When she walked Lillian across the street, it was five minutes away from the time that Daniel wakes up like clockwork. 
12 to 2, 12 to 2, 12 to 2. That doesn't make any sense. But even more so damning is that there were fingerprints. On and around the phone, there were five full fingerprints, one partial fingerprint and one partial palm print. All but one belonged to Martin and or Joan on the phone. But the fingerprint on the receiver speaker and the fingerprint on the wall mount where the phone hung did not belong to either Martin or Joan or anyone that had been in their new house. They had only been there for fucking six months. They know who's been in that house. To this day, a match has never, ever come up in CODIS anywhere. What? To those fingerprints. They're full fingerprints. No one has ever matched with them. Not even when they died, their fingerprints weren't put in the system. So that does happen when you die. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets fingerprinted. Everyone gets fingerprinted. You go in the system. From my shit. my experience, at least. Aaron, too, now. That's what I'm thinking. I, mean, I, th- I think I've been fingerprinted probably before. Probably, for the university. Yeah, probably. Anyways, so... And they've never had a match to this day. No one could even begin to think of a single person that would ever want to harm, let alone kill or kidnap Joan, especially in this brand new fucking town that they just got to. However, they did have some leads that they had to see through. It kind of starts around that car that Virginia King saw when she was walking home from the bus stop. And that was also confirmed by that woman named Hilda who lived down the road. That dirty blue, either 54 Plymouth or 56 Oldsmobile sedan seen by Virginia and Hilda was either the biggest red herring of all or the key to all of this. So investigators question all of the locals in the area, all of the neighbors, anyone who had been on this side of the town that day around those times, as well as the Rish's milkman and mailman about this car. The milkman said that he had seen that exact same car parked in Jones Drive driveway up beside her car five days earlier on October 19th and another milkman said that he actually saw that car at some point in the Rish's driveway on the day of the 24th when he was driving his rounds he doesn't know when it was though what the fuck unfortunately though no one saw who was driving this car not a single description oddly enough though five or so weeks after jones disappearance an anonymous man called the boston record american newspaper with a tip about that car in jones case he claimed to have seen that car in the rish's driveway on the day that joan disappeared quote Something about it, end quote, made him feel like something was wrong, a bad feeling. So he took a mental note that the license plate started with P24. I think this is weird. Five weeks later, this was a national story. This was a huge story from the time that it happened. Yeah. It was everywhere. And it's just. Either you know whose car that is. Or you, you heard something and you're giving someone a tip and you're yeah. like, this is what it starts with. Good luck. You know? Yeah. What are the chances? So you're like in your anonymous. You're adamant about being anonymous. Never come forward again either to like explain. Not even to the police station, right? To, no, news- to the newspaper. So 
this was very sus because it had been in the media for like five weeks at this point so you know it was like slowing down in terms Mm -hmm. of like her prime time right it's just weird that he was so adamant about being anonymous and he's just now reporting this so they're like this person knows something investigators were immediately like this is something so we're gonna see this through so they try to track the call they're unable to do so so they run a big search of all registered 54 blue Plymouths and 56 blue or gray Oldsmobile sedans any of those that start with P24 and they get like 11,000 matches and then they find the one that they believe is the one because it had been stolen and been gone during the time frame that Joan disappeared. It belonged to this man in Medford, Massachusetts and they found him in December of 1961, so just a few months after. They learned that this man's car had been stolen and then recovered and it was completely documented in police reports. The owner was very very helpful and kind. He handed over his car to be searched by the forensics team, like analyzed all the things by police, but unfortunately though, there was nothing found connecting this car to Joan's disappearance at all. Investigators didn't stop searching for that car though. So they probably <laughs> so they probs so they probably thought that this was a false report or they got the wrong car but they were on the right path type of situation but what was even more so weird to them was the fact that someone potentially was trying to throw them off of a scent and give them a red hearing track that instead of the car right so this can also double as more support for the foul play theory This dead end sort of sparked something in Joan's female neighbors, though, because they immediately remembered something odd with the Minuteman National Historical Park. In the fall of 1961, the government began the plans for the park that we have today, Minuteman National Historical Park. Therefore, they needed to buy up all the land and the homes in that area. So they sent out like agents, purchasing agents to go talk with owners in this area, educate them on what's going on and offer them and tell them what the process is about. And one of these men rubbed all of the women the wrong way on Old Bedford. His name was Robert Foster. He was a purchasing agent with the National Park Service and according to many of the women in the area, he quote, overstayed his welcome and made them all feel very uncomfortable when speaking to them inside of their homes. According to Foster's logs, he had visited Joan at the Rish's home on September 25th, so a month almost to the day prior to her disappearance. But on the day of October 24th, 1961, Robert had actually come back to Lincoln around 3 p.m. to meet with an appraiser after having lunch with a friend at 1 p.m. in a different like neighboring town. And his alibi was confirmed by three other people. He was asked if he remembered anything from that day, September 25th, when he had the appointment with Joan to discuss this Minuteman National Park buying their house. But all he could remember was that there was another woman there with her. No one knows who this woman is. They have asked around. They got a description of her. It's not any of her friends that she has in the area. Not any of her friends had come down to visit her from either Brooklyn, Chicago, New Rochelle, or Ridgefield. No, no, none of them. All of her friends that were in Lincoln were like, it wasn't me. Was it you? Are you sure it wasn't you? Go check your calendar, like type thing. I also, though, feel like maybe could it? it's really not possible that none of the neighbor girls forgot. Because, like, if they all knew he was creepy, then maybe they were like, hey, let's just, I'll come over with you real quick. Or, like, they were over for tea and he just, like, stopped by or something. I mean, maybe, but I feel like they would have known because they hadn't, like, gone and hung out with each other Mm -hmm. just alone. 
Unless it was Barbara. Without the kids, unless it was Barbara or Jane or Sabra. And like yeah. that was it because she's been five months. She's only got this big of a friend group. Right. You know, and it and everybody else in that town knows everyone. So they had been like, oh, yeah, I saw your car over there that day. What was that about? But no one even spotted a car. It That's was like fucking weird. It's fucking weird. Martin was like, she didn't have anyone over that day. So maybe this dude was getting it confused. But either way, he was let go because he had an alibi and he pretty much checked out. But Robert was not the only suspect that investigators were looking into. Almost a year after her disappearance in August of 1962, a tip from one of Joan's aunts led them to look into her adopted father Frank Natras. This aunt was named Florence Bard so I'm assuming that this is her dad's sister or something like that but I don't her last name was Bard and that's Joan's maiden name or it could be maybe like her dad's brother's wife. As a reminder when Joan's parents died Joan went to live with Alice who was her mom's sis and Frank Natras her husband along with their five children when she was just the age of eight years old and by all accounts Frank was a terrible and violent nasty man with no drive or love and no possibility to provide for his family so he was stressed all the time and let it out on them. According to Florence Bard just either a month or a week or so there's different accounts on this I'm gonna go with at least a month because this is letters communication before Joan's disappearance she told her adopted mother slash aunt Alice for the first time in her life in a letter that Frank had molested her and sexually assaulted her throughout her childhood I'm not sure of the exact timeline of this, but I am sure that Alice and Frank, when this letter and these conversations were happening, were separated at that time. According to Florence, in this interview with police in August of 1962, she explained that Frank had been living off of his sister Grace for a really long time. He was still being awful but it just made it to where he didn't have to be stressed out about money but then grace got sick he had no more money to even support alice and their youngest daughter who was 15 years old or 13 years old at the time her name was evelyn living at home to joan this put evelyn in a very vulnerable situation as a teenager because joan's 15 years older than her youngest sister Mm -hmm. and she loved evelyn they had a very special relationship because joan was like 15 16 whenever evelyn was born and frank was up being a psychopath Alice had four other kids that she five other kids yeah so Joan was like Evelyn's other mom and that was like her baby doll so she had a very special connection with Evelyn and she was also very close with Alice like almost in a way that Alice couldn't get away from her abuser because she didn't have the means to and so they were kind of in this together like fuck him but we have to have him until the kids grow up Mm -hmm. I don't know why I keep like calling individual people out she was close with all five of her siblings like she had two brothers two sisters or three brothers two sisters and two of the brothers names were ben and peter now peter joan peter's wife and martin were like a little bestie couples you know what i mean they loved each other and they were similar like life paths you know they had a lot in common but she used to also be very close with their other brother named ben who now had a very strained relationship with the family because he had began acting like frank and he had became frank's little bestie minion Mm -hmm. so then everyone had to ditch him 
Either way, when Frank's sister, Grace, got sick, about that same time, 15, 16, possibly even 14-year-old Evelyn began acting out really bad. And she was mirroring very clearly Ben and Frank, which really, really worried Alice and everyone in the family. So Alice decided that it was finally time that she ran. She got the fuck out of this relationship with Frank. Together, Martin, Joan's husband, and Peter, Joan's brother, paid to move Alice and Evelyn in one swoop from New York all the way to California and hide them from Frank. After a few weeks or months of living there, Frank started calling to try and get Alice and Evelyn to come back to him in New York. Everyone was really afraid that he would succeed in manipulating them because that's what he was good at. Right. But Joan could not let that happen as she feared if he hadn't already, Frank would begin assaulting and molesting Evelyn and even possibly kill Alice for running away. Right. Which is why a week before or a month before her death, differing reports, she finally told Alice what Frank had done to her because she wanted to warn Evelyn as well. That was only a month before. Mm-hmm. We know I... So I'm going to... Let me finish this first and I'll tell you. Actually, I'll do it and tell you now. So the thing with this is that both Alice and Evelyn confirm having gotten this letter, but they were so disturbed by the details of it that they burnt it. And they like were sick for two weeks and they even wrote letters to Peter's wife talking about like how absolutely disturbed they were about this letter because Peter's wife knew. And so they had the letters that they had sent to Peter's wife, but they didn't have the one that Joan had written with all the proof on it that this is real. Some people discount this account I think that I mean it shows motive for it, Frank it shows motive for Frank and I also think she just that aired his dirty laundry if and I, she's also the reason that they all left yeah and then also like imagine if you got because police are like why would you burn that imagine if I wrote you a letter with like something right. so traumatic and awful that affects all of us in different ways we would burn it We'd be like, burn that. We don't ever want to see that again. I want to get rid of it. I don't ever, I would delete the text message. Right. You know, like they basically did that. Now, Florence followed this up by saying that she had repeatedly told the FBI that, quote, if Frank Natras did not do this himself, he sent his son, Ben, or he paid someone to do this to Joan, end quote. Investigators then interviewed Frank Natras and questioned him about all of these allegations, which he obviously denied. Then they compared his prints to the ones found at the scene, but no match. They compared Ben's, no match. Frank took two polygraphs, which both came back inconclusive, but his alibi for October 24th, 1961 was confirmed that he had been at work during the time frame that Joan went missing. But Ben did not get his alibi cleared because that day, October 24th, he was scheduled to work from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. He's a bartender. And no one could say for sure that he was there that day. They didn't like have record. They didn't keep record of it, which I'm like, how is your payroll working then? Right. And even then, though, it all happened before 6 p.m. Right. So he could have gotten there in time. Or how was he acting? When investigators interviewed him, they noted that they felt he was over-exaggerating and or faking his grief, turning it on and turning it off at different moments. But this was, even though they felt this way about him, they had no nothing Wait, to hold Frank? him with. No, with Ben. With Ben. The brother, okay. yeah. 
they had nothing to hold either of them. So they had to let them go. They tried to re-interview everyone in 1963 that had been originally interviewed or even touches Joan in any way, shape, or form. And they were able to get every single person that we've gone through today, every person, every random witness, so on and so forth, except for Ben. He was untraceable. They could not find him and they've never interviewed him again. What do you do? Sneak out of the country? I don't know. He's just gone. What the fuck? Some say that I tried to like look into this and they were like, maybe he was in jail at that time. But I'm like, did he use a fucking fake name when he went to jail? Right, They would have known that. Right. Especially because you're saying FBI, right? I mean, FBI was involved in this. Yeah. yeah. Though I'm not exactly sure what it was that caused investigators to do this giant re-interview of everyone in 1963. I did come across a huge breakthrough that happened around this same time in that same year in Jones case that flipped everything on its fucking head. But also, that would be what triggered them to go re-interview everyone. So, hold on to your panties, ladies. This one's about to get crazy. And your briefs, man. And it involves us. Us? It, like, involves, like, an extension of us. It's Me and you? This is crazy. It says Maureen and Taylor? No, it doesn't involve us. But it, it, like, it's relatable to us, okay? So, a local Lincoln reporter for, like, a local newspaper, 40-year-old Serene Gerson, had gone to the local library in Lincoln one day to check out a new book for herself. She chose a book titled Into Thin Air. It's about a woman who disappeared, leaving behind only a home of blood smears and towels as clues to where to find her. When Serene went to go check out this book, signing her name in the back like you'd have to in libraries, she spots something. It's Joan Risch's signature and the date, May 11th, 1961. She had checked out and read this book. Serene thought to herself, oh my God, wow, that is an awful foreshadowing moment coincidence. But the reporter in her was like, dig into this. Wait a second. There's something here. She grabbed another crime book, just a random one off the shelf, and it was titled The Disappearance of Brigham Young's 27th Wife. And there was Joan's signature on the back. September 16th, 1961. Serene immediately took this to police, but first she pulled together all of the records of the Risch family library card and got volunteers from the Lincoln Library Committee to help her sift through every single book that Joan had read. They went through every single one of these books from April 20th, 1961, the day the family got their library card until the last one that she checked out just before her death. There were 24 books total. Most of them were crime novels, but there were some historical accounts, travel, and nature books as well. All of the things that we know Joan loves. Now, the second book that she ever checked out on April 26th was, a, was about a boy who went missing on purpose, which also stood out. This started a conversation about how Joan was really feeling about her life at this point. The move, motherhood of two children by herself, her husband's working all the time, how her marriage is doing, and how she's feeling with her career goals. There's a lot of discourse between what people feel that Joan was feeling at that time. She had been telling a lot of friends and family members that from the time they moved to Lincoln that she decided she wanted to be a English teacher when the kids got old enough that she could. So we can tell that she's getting a little bit antsy being a homemaker, being a stay-at-home wife that, that's maybe not fulfilling her fully. So she's starting to think. She's starting to be like, okay, like what can I do after this? Making plans. Mm -hmm. And then other people are saying that maybe she wasn't as happy with Martin as she put off because in the 60s, you didn't tell anyone how you were actually feeling. You shut the fuck up and you put your head down and you did what you had to do. But 
everyone that knew Joan, like truly knew her, were like, this has nothing to do with Martin or the kids. This is her entire life. Like, this doesn't make sense. She was happy. She loved her life. She There would have been signs if she wanted to get up and walk away. And like, also, what is she going to do? Use these like fake fiction novels to make a game plan? Right. About how she's going to get out. There's not any actual like spy books or detective books or gone girl books that have been being. Yeah. No how to guides being pulled on how to do it, on how to leave your life successfully or set up something to make it look like you were dead. And why would she do that? Right. No one can think of a good reason. Since then, Joan's case has. And guys, there I'll try to find the full list. I had it on my notes and I can go pull it back up for you guys so you can look at all the books that she checked out because they are weirdly coincidental if anything since then Joan's case has sat unsolved for 62 years with no discoveries no arrest and no body Martin refused to ever legally declare his wife dead because he didn't think that she was he never changed his phone number and he stayed at that exact same house and raised Lillian and David in that home without changing the locks once in 1975 their home was bought by the National Park Service for the Minuteman National Park historical whatever the hell and Martin had to move to another home just minutes away in South Lincoln where he lived until the day that he died keeping his number and locks the exact same he died in 2009 at the age of 79 still not knowing what happened to Joan but he wholeheartedly believed that she was out there and she was alive and maybe she would walk back in his front door someday wow so let's talk theories please I'm going to list off to you guys and I'm just going to discuss them I'm not going to take we already know what there is to discuss about these theories we all know every single detail of the case and that's why another reason I wanted to make this case uh, its own episode is because no one people need to hear this case people need to cover this case we need to get it out there people need to think use your brain okay right that's what needs to happen there needs to be more eyes on this and I think that this could be one that if not like completely solved but like there's some resolution to it someone knows something somewhere that will come forward it's been 62 fucking years right half of these people are dead so how who's gonna know you know there's probably something Lillian remembers something more that she Mm-hmm. under hypnosis anything you know what and I mean? you have you have to consider with a case this old there's stuff that they still haven't put out right because they've never marked it as uh, you know Salt. officially closed or anything right. like that never accidental it's just a missing persons case a crazy a suspicious missing persons case which is also weird when you look at the fact that her parents died in a very suspicious house fire that was accidental right right so i forgot about that yeah So here are, oh wait, what I was going back to. Okay, with me making this its own episode and knowing that there's not that many podcasters that have covered it, I have triple checked my research. Like there has been nothing, like maybe there's like a few details that could be off and I've even like said when there has been something off. This, these are the facts. These are the most facts of the facts that I can find. Y'all rest assured that you can go out confidently and talk about this case because if not, then all these sources are wrong right (laughs) let's go through the main theories now there's two sides of this number one foul play is involved number two foul play is not involved number one foul play is involved frank killed her i would be on board with this because he does have motive like i was Mm -hmm. saying earlier he she helped his wife and his daughter get away Mm -hmm. she outed him Mm -hmm. for the sexual abuse the molestation in detail i do see that motive carried on with Ben through it though because mm-hmm. he was cleared 
Right. So it would have to be like he a, hired someone, a Frank and Ben or Hit all linked in together. But I'm also wondering what was the relationship like with Frank and Joan's parents? You know, I, what could he have had to benefit from adopting her? Yeah. Because why, if she's got other siblings, why did she end up going with Alice and Frank? Like of all the people, of all, we know that there's Florence. The ones that have the most kids. The most kids and all the things. Struggling. And I tried to find if there was something about this in there. Like maybe Alice and Josephine had like a, an agreement of some sort that they would take care of each other's children. I couldn't find any like bad blood that there could possibly be between Frank and them. But I also don't think that like Florence Bard, her other aunt would have allowed her to go live with Alice and Frank if at that time Frank didn't seem like a good person because business was good for him then. Mm -hmm. He was doing his own, he owned his own music production and they lived in New Rochelle. They, you know, had a nice house that they could accommodate. They could feed all these kids. Like they were doing pretty decent at this point in time. But what's so weird about it is the way that when Joan came to live with Frank and Alice, first thing he did was change her last name, which this this girl has been through something very, very extremely traumatic. Like, wh why, why are we rushing immediately? Why is that the first thing that we're doing? I don't know. But speaking on Frank real quick, mm -hmm. because this area is, you said, New York. New York. New York is heavily tied to mafia. Mafia. Mm -hmm. Mobs. Especially in the 60s. The 60s in the music industry, mm -hmm. the entertainment industry. Yep. Who funded that? And I also want to know what her dad did. I saw like differing reports on it. So I didn't That's end up writing what I was it down. Wondering. Was the family involved in or the parents involved somehow tied up with the mafia? Maybe for just like even just like a shark loan. Yeah. Well, I mean, a loan shark. shark That's loan. what I was thinking too. Like for these little businesses because that they, they're running. Well, also we know that like josephine harold and joan prior to their death like they were struggling they were having to move back and forth a lot for work they don't say what i can't really find what they did they applied for a social security card under the name joan natras like the week that her parents died though which i think is weird who the fuck cared about it like right. the importance of a social security card being appropriate in the 60s right that is weird. Weird. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Some, yeah, something, you're right, that there, that does seem like there's like a hit involved in some way. And I also find it so weird that Florence was adamant he hired someone to do it if he didn't do it himself or he sent his son. So kind of seems to me like this is something that Frank does. Right. Yeah. And everyone was suspicious of the fire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he would have been involved in that, but like. But what if he was? But like, what if what he if, was? What if there was bad blood between their dad or and he dad confirmed and that she wasn't home joan wasn't home yeah that night because like how would what are and the chances he, he gets say say they had some sort of life insurance or w yeah. whatever as soon as she's legally his they have it, access yeah. to that she's eight years old it's his You're his right. music career is booming oh also if frank had been the one to have gone over there if it was someone that josephine and harold knew then the dog wouldn't have gotten up and freaked out right but it was in the middle of the night, though. And, like, the dog would have heard the fire, smelled the fire, and got up and... I mean, it was clearly calculated, Began though, like alerting, that. yeah. This was plain... I think 100% her parents were murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Which I wish they would have seen that through because that probably would have told us a lot more about what we need to be looking into when it comes to Joan's disappearance. Right. Okay, so number two under foul play is involved. Someone attacked her at random or had been, like, watching her realized because she had a pretty like routine schedule right 
you know, the naps and when she needs to be home and when she's home for the day, when she gets all her errands done, when Barbara's there, when Barbara's kids are not there. Yeah. When she's alone in the house, we know that her husband travels very often. So someone could have been watching her and getting familiar with her schedule and found out that Martin was going to be gone, which then it could be like someone who's a part of a driver routine past there, the milkman, the postman, um, the dry cleaner dude. But all those people were cleared. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm for the car to have been spotted there five days prior, whatever it was, a, mm-hmm. a couple days before earlier that day up in the driveway at the bottom of the driveway. She would have picked up on that. And I feel like she would have been over to her bestie or her husband like, hey, I'm kind of getting weirded out. Like, I yeah. think someone's watching us. Yeah. And it's not like it, this is a, a driveway that you would like turn down, like turn around right, exactly. in, like necessarily. There's a million driveways on that road. Yeah. You could have turned into any single one. Right. And it's not like you're going to come do that five days in a row. Yeah. You know, weird. Now, th- I'm going to give you guys a trigger warning because I'm gonna we're going to be discussing abortion, miscarriage in this section throughout for a little bit longer. But so number three with foul play being involved does surround an illegal abortion. What the theory is with this is that she's pregnant. You, some people say possibly by a lover. Some people say possibly by Martin and she just didn't want to have another kid. She couldn't handle it with the rate that he was traveling and having mm-hmm. two young kids. Or this was a hookup. Who knows? You know, but let's say she gets pregnant and she decides that she wants to have an abortion. It was le- illegal back then. Mm-hmm. Surprise everybody. It's still illegal now here in Tennessee. Um, and an illegal abortion doctor comes to do that. Okay. Let's say something goes wrong right and she begins bleeding out she wants to go and call for help that doctor would be charged and killed that doctor would stop her from calling which then the timeline of this car that's hanging around kind of matches come and have a meeting about her options and the procedure and everything five days prior come back Mm-hmm. park away so no one sees and maybe he has to go get her body yeah or something and he freaks out the doctor freaks out when she tries to call 911 how would that tie into her on the road that's what i keep forgetting that's the thing though we don't know if that was her so if she was on the road let, let's go back through that with frank she's on the road we don't know for sure that's her this could be someone, someone totally planned it it could yeah. be someone totally different or someone dressed up in joan's outfit made a big scene so barbara would see puts on joan's outfit walks around that could be it. Mm-hmm. But if let's say Frank has her killed, Frank kills her. Maybe he gets her in the car. Maybe that's why there wasn't so much blood. She wasn't dead. Maybe she was incapacitated. She wakes up on Route 2A, jumps in her, uh, jumps out of the car, rolls out, starts running, ends up very confused, not knowing where she's at. She's new to the area. She doesn't know the area like the back of her hand. He picks her back up. He either p- picks her back up. She's trying to walk home. He gets he comes and picks her up that could be the same as someone attacked her at random mm-hmm. she escapes she rolls out she's got an injury she's disoriented gets out she's in the middle of the fucking median all the different things or it couldn't even be her but going back to the illegal abortion gone wrong what doctor in the area would she know that dentist mm-hmm. why like i've never seen this anywhere i didn't see this written down but when i when people talk about this potential abortion she pulls out the 911 he rips it out i'm thinking who, what doctor would she know in this Besides area? Besides the dentist who she's had 11 cavities 11 filled. different appointments with. She had been with that morning. I have no idea what he drives. Right. And if he's a, a lot of dentists did do, perform illegal abortions mm-hmm. during this time because they had the tools to do so, which is so sickening that literally we're covering something that happened 62 years ago and 
we're in the we're exact still, same predicament right now. Like, okay, what the fuck? Okay, moving but on. That's a good point. Do you have anything that you think that would align with foul play is involved? I think Robert could technically have done it. Robert, Robert Foster, the national parks buying agent. Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. Because, like, he's like, oh, she was with a girl. Mm, probably not. No, she Our wasn't. Girl was very private. And then a lot of people wonder if he actually raped Joan and she was pregnant from that incident and that's why she was getting an abortion that day or reached back out to him or something that he was in the area maybe that's why he was there who knows interesting that's one that's been floated around i think the emergency line to me in the miller the miller the miller's weird so what did this fucking illegal back you know back well, that's office, why i think it would be someone that she knew abortion it would be like, ben it would be frank it would it could be, be dr goldstein he's dr. like do you care if i have a beer or you drink a few beers because she had gotten he okay so he like yeah. specifically wrote on his record that she had been given lidocaine that day to get her filling yeah. her cavity filled and i think it's weird that like she got her cavity filled the same day that lillian had to go get a cleaning like mm-hmm. why wouldn't you leave lillian right. with barbara because you're about to get a filling done that's going to take a sec and what's lillian going to do sit in your lap the whole time right yeah, her, her cleaning is 20 minutes. Right. And whereas all the other 11 ones, either Sabra, Jane, or Barbara, have been watching the kids or Martin. Yeah. So it's just weird. Yeah, that dentist is suspicious. It's a little sus. And I haven't seen that anywhere. And I'm not, I'm just, ale- I'm, I'm proposing a theory. This is alleged. This is, this is all, yeah, this whole section is theories. Theories, theories, conspiracy theories. They're not real. Okay. Next, foul play is not involved. Number one at home abortion by herself gone wrong thought maybe i'm going to call police and then realize that she would probably be prosecuted get in trouble for doing so supporting this is the fact that there were there was that broken plastic hanger Mm -hmm. and this is so gory and so awful but it's reality when you don't have access to fucking health care right and it was like the number one most common way that women did at at home yep so maybe she in the metal Hang in on. the metal on the car so then maybe she had was trying to give herself an at-home and abortion at-home abortion the first one breaks she puts it in the trash can she remembers that there's another one a, a wire one she tries to use that right but if she walked lillian and douglas over at 155 five minutes before david woke up why would she try in a five minute window right she know you know it's not going to yeah. be a fast situation I feel like those hangers either are an, a sign of an abortion, mm-hmm. whether, no, I think if it was a dentist, he would use something he would else. Use, yeah. An at-home abortion, or I think it's a sign of going back to Frank, Ben, random person or whatever, as you were saying, dressing up. They had whip, ripped those jackets off the freaking closet. Mm-hmm. Two hangers, two different jackets. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Swapped outside from the right on top of the car yeah swap the change her outside to the gray got in the car went down the highway yeah i mean that would make sense like took that tan one went and hung it back up because she had been she had made a loud sound at that point in time yeah and then what was the red thing no one can ever figure out what the red thing in her hand was so wait what do people believe the red thing was a baby Mm -mm. no no they don't know if it was blood blood or and a towel because i mean across the street i mean you see how fun we know that they're across like way back on the properties where their house are sitting red like i wouldn't see blood and be like that's red you know what i mean like it'd be like a red shirt a red ball or something like that like a bright like a real red not like a blood red Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like there's a there's a difference between the two and it's not like it's outside so it was a moving thing she said barbara said that she thought that the red thing was low to the ground and that joan was like reaching to get it but could be 
if it was an abortion or so on. But we do have one on the same like abortion path in the not foul play. And that is that she maybe had an unexpected miscarriage Mm -hmm. like was newly pregnant ends up having a miscarriage that's why she immediately took Lillian and Douglas across the street she needed to go take care of herself before David woke up and she was trying to call for help to go to a hospital or even call Barbara when she got back home who knows and then something happened maybe she's so upset about it that she rips the phone from the wall she throws it she's starts drinking who knows you know like what whatever it could have been she doesn't go and get David and she slips into a form of psychosis Mm -hmm. or whether it is the miscarriage or the abortion some people believe that she could have slipped into a psychosis with that or had felt so much shame in doing so and had hurt herself or had gotten hurt in the midst of it and just panicked and walked out the door was going to like take herself as far away from her babies as possible so that she could end her own life but there's no body and there was no way that the bloodhound, like the bloodhounds would have followed her scent all the way down right. two way, all the way down route 128. She had to have gotten into a car. So the thing is with that is maybe a doctor did perform an abortion or someone was there with her when she was miscarrying, when she was having an abortion. If this was the case, no matter what it was, if someone was there with her, did they put her like, say like, I'll meet you this place or try to take her to the doctor. And she's like, I want out. I'm going to be prosecuted. Like, who knows? You know, like it could be a variety of these things, but we do know that she potentially was spotted walking on two-way and then walked on two-way somehow got to route 128 mm-hmm. which is right beside her house and then like on the interstate on the other side of town i don't yeah, know like a car uh, let me pull that up again i have the map in here well i also feel like that psychosis or that anger at herself would match with the scene of where everything was flipped over misplaced yeah you know yeah like flipping like just being Smeared, fucking like just mad. like mad and like Hitting your hand on the ground. She goes in there and she looks at David sleeping in his crib. That's why there's blood on the windowsill. She maybe looks out at Lillian and she decides that she wants to walk away from her life, which is the next theory. That something happened. It became too much. She wanted to walk away from her life, whether that was triggered by an abortion, a miscarriage, maybe even just like cutting her finger. Yeah. And it just was like the the fucking final thing that she could take that day and so she lost her mind and was like i got to go she was in psychosis like she could still have been struggling with postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis and never known and maybe she's had a miscarriage before Mm -hmm. and never told anyone got a really bad nosebleed and that sight of blood Mm -hmm. on the ground triggered triggered her in some way it could be anything anything another one that everyone always tries to go with is suicide i don't I really don't feel like yeah, no, this me is suicide. Like, how would you hide your body or you didn't write a note? Like, you didn't tell someone to come check on your kids. You didn't know for sure that anyone was even right. going to be there, that Lillian would even know to yeah. come. I'm over faking a death more so than suicide. Me too, 100%. So um, walking away from her life in the way of, like, faking her own death. Mm-hmm. She, if, if that was the case, she literally took it out of the script for Into Thin Air wild so then half a pint of blood that i mean that's how much you would be able to get out if you were trying to still be able to run away right and did she have someone come pick her up and maybe there was a girl a friend that no one knew about that was and that guy wasn't lying yeah he 
she was coming she was really there and she was they set this all up it was a month prior to the day come yeah. a month from now and we'll go martin's gonna be out of town i'll make sure that something's set up in the evening that barbara will need to come over here she can watch the kids and i can get out because what better bait for barbara to go to the house than your own lillian and douglas just being sitting just being walked over there without any explanation like right that would be so out of character for joan that barbara would be like what the fuck let me walk over there right who knows and, and then, then Barbara's it, so mad that she just keeps fucking rolling. And this is like crazy, but like, what about Barbara? I know. Like, she's really the only person that knows anything throughout the day, and she's the only one that saw something red. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you're not going to be able to see that blood across the room. So either that could have just been like she saw the crime scene, she's thinking about it at her day, and she's mm-hmm. like, I know I saw something red. Like maybe I did. You know what I mean? Like maybe how it was can- blood. Yeah how you can do that to yourself and like maybe that's the case but she i don't know maybe there's the some- only person that saw her all day that right. other than the doctor she's the dentist she, she's given us the story we, this story is, is the account barbara. of barbara now police say that she was completely cleared and that she had no motive yeah, for anything. i don't think she did but like me also, either just throw the question out it's just weird yeah it's really is weird and also what if lillian didn't walk back across the street right you know what have ha- what would have happened a four-year-old yeah for walking back across the street by herself it's just it makes no sense yeah. nothing about it makes sense at all so this next one this is what her husband martin believed until the day he died like wholeheartedly he believed that she was working out in the yard and she hurt herself somehow fell hit something hurt herself walked lillian and douglas across the street just so they could be somewhere and she could go help herself before david woke up didn't have time to talk to barbara and maybe she was bleeding when she walked her across the street got inside realized how bad it was maybe had it wrapped up when she was bringing them over got inside realized how bad it was maybe faints because there's so much blood so fast and she didn't think it was that bad because she was working out the yard with shears sometimes the sight of blood yeah she was working out with shears though that's what she was doing right before she walked them back over so maybe she fainted hit her head had amnesia woke up began just walking that's why she's walking while she's bleeding that's why she's holding that's why she's going walking aimlessly looks disheveled going different directions all the different things it's october 24th so it's cold it's in connecticut i mean it's in boston it's cold so she just like put on like random coats and stuff and like head out the door and just had amnesia and just had no idea where the fuck she was or what was going on Wow. I mean, we've covered Stephen Kubaki, which there's an update in that case. We've covered the dude that I just recently covered. The skiing guy. The skiing guy. I, I, we've done this many a times where people just have no, no recollection of like a long period of time in their lives. Yeah. So it could be that. And that's truly what that's the only thing that Martin could settle with settle with because nothing else makes sense to him like he would never she would never just choose to leave her kids here squalling knowing that he's not even going to be home at 5 p.m. He's going to be home the next day. Not the Joan he knew. Yeah, right. Like, he knew. The next one is that she suffered a mental health episode of some sort. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in her past that would... Indicate that. Indicate this. Like, not in her family history that anyone knew of. But... I did come across this, and I confirmed it, but uh, I came across this comment, and I I went and I pulled up the sources. It's true. And so I wanted to bring it to your attention. This guy named Chris K commented on an article that was explaining the different theories in this case, and four years ago commented, I've studied this case for years, even spoke with a few detectives around at the time. I first came to the conclusion that Joan was bored of her mundane life in the burbs and wanted out, so she faked something. 
she faked something that mirrored the book that she had read into thin air and ended up living somewhere where she wrote books underneath a different name. And there are many things that point to that. But then I came across something. Joan's son, David, who is now in his 50s, relatively very young, lives in some kind of care home about 30 minutes outside of Lincoln. And about a dozen times over last year, he got up to take a stroll and had gone missing and would be brought back days later by police. He just gets up, goes for a walk, and never comes back. They found him in various different locations, once laying in a field. He didn't know who he was, and then at other times, he's perfectly normal. If you go back to Joan's parents, they de- they died in a house fire that cannot be explained. So what does that mean? But I'm not here to diagnose anyone. This guy, Chris, is kind of a dick for the way that he worded the rest of it. But I looked that up, and that's true. His her, uh, David has, for the majority of his adult life, has been living in assisted, hair, uh, assisted care facilities. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have no idea anything about Lillian. What, you also have to think like that is like could be trauma induced. That's I mean, what I'm thinking. Baby, so we have but, no idea. I mean, but yeah. it still would affect him in a way like for sure. growing up, knowing that you're you were left there for almost an hour squalling while yeah. you're abandoned, abandoned like that would give you, you know, that that would really like be traumatic for, for a sure. kid growing up knowing and probably lead to a bunch of other things happening but like we don't know when that started what caused it and we don't have any detail about his history or anyone's medical history so I don't want to assume and that again the dogs probably would have picked something up the dogs would have known or she would have yeah. been someone would have stopped yeah and been like hey maybe someone did and maybe it was a wrong bad person that stopped and that's why she was never seen again but you know what I just realized the biggest thing, not the biggest, but like one of the bigger things at the house was the phone. The phone was ripped out. Mm-hmm. Cord was off. Emergency pages were open. Flipped over. Blood smeared around Someone the phone. Someone was blowing her up on the phone. That. But her dad died holding the phone in the kitchen it's of chills. the floor of the house when he died of smoke inhalation. What if that was like her like Trigger. trying to like say, like trying to give a sign of some sort. You just rip out the phone as you're getting fighting and throw it out, you know. But like there wasn't like broken shattered glass everywhere or anything like that. But then again, she's a mom. Her daughter's sitting across the street. If someone came out of the woods when Douglas and Lillian were playing and David's asleep upstairs five minutes before he wakes up, puts a gun up to her head and says, I'm taking you, get in the fucking car. She would say, let me walk my daughter across the street. I'm My, da- my son's sleeping. I'm going to put on my jacket. She screams. Another similarity from that case this case was that david was left alone upstairs just like the dog was, was left, left alone, alone upstairs in her bedroom, right in her bedroom yeah asleep wrapped in a blanket weird yeah um now lastly this is the final thing that's like widely speculated those construction zones on the side of route 128 a lot of people believe that if she had gone walking for whatever reason it could have been no matter what that there were like massive holes that were being dug and like tons mm-hmm. of construction stuff and equipment over there like something could have happened to her and she could have fallen into something right. and had no idea gravel over top yep yeah which is why she's never been found I think they said like 5,000 different fingerprints have been compared to the fingerprints that were found in the home. Her dental records have been sent to like all unidentified Jane Doe's ever bones everything her dental uh dna everything nothing wow nothing has ever been connected to her that is mind-blowing yeah is there a movie no that's what i'm saying like nobody knows about this fucking case like this sounds like damn gone girl like it seriously does it's crazy nothing 
I looked all over. Like, I had to watch, like, <laughs> shitty YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Bad YouTube videos. Yeah, that, I have no idea. Yeah. Like, my mind, every every theory that you gave, my mind is going down that whole, yeah, I could see that, yeah, I could see that, yeah, I could see that. You could have, like, a pro and a con for every single one. Yeah. Like, that that one where I got that comment off of, it was a really well-written article, and I, I'll, I need to link it so that you guys can see it and read through it if you want to. But just in case it's not linked for you guys, it's the Medium article, Into Thin Air, by William Keckler. Basically, they put forth the different theories and say whether or not, based off their research, if this is feasible or not. But that's the case. I mean, I love the way you covered it. Thank you. It was good. It's a crazy fucking case. It's crazy. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing. It, like there's that, nothing that about to me it is like a case where it's going to be solved right because like, it's right there it's the something's right here there. there's a million things that we have to look at here yeah and with today's technology like if they took this case as seriously as they said they did and that they've been acting like they have do some tests run yeah. some tests there's got to be something something yeah. i agree one thing and if there's so many the house was bought for a pr- preservation right or is it knocked down so here's the thing about that i forgot to mention this when they bought the house in 1975 from martin rish he moved to a different location in south lincoln but the house was moved to lexington kentucky i don't know i it just says lexington let me see if there's a lexington in in this area because that would tell us a lot mm-hmm Okay, here we go to Lexington. Lexington in Massachusetts. It's a suburb 10 miles from downtown Boston. What if she lived there the entire time in that same house, new location? Why would they pick that house up and move it? I have no idea. What the fuck is the point of that? I have no idea. Like, why wouldn't Martin stay in it if it was just going to be moved? Like, what was that about? Maybe Martin knew the truth about what really happened. Yeah. And And he was like, you want the house? Yeah. Here's the house. Or maybe they continued, like being together but something had happened maybe she had to go into witness protection who fucking knows like this is crazy yeah witness protection is actually a very good yeah theory because like yeah there's no footprints anywhere at all in this entire house and she's potentially struggling with someone no one saw or heard anything other than her shouting and like saying yeah. something in a authoritarian voice yeah and like what was she saying they said it was just like a like a hey you know like a something like that like how I yell, yeah, like, yell at the cat. Yeah, like how if Ollie was doing something, yo, like, yo, quit, type of thing. I would. Or like, I come that. back here. I wouldn't do that, but yeah. Yeah, you would. Ollie! That's not what you say. You say, bro, what is it? Don't do that. What? Excuse me. That's what you say. That, it would sound like your authoritarian voice, though. Like, yeah. you, like you're, you're saying something demanding and stern, and but it's not like frantic and screaming. Right. You know? It's just like she's yelling. Yeah, like, like, stop. Or if it, because for Barbara to at first, like, reaction think like, oh, David's, you know, running down the driveway and she's grabbing him so he doesn't fall because he's two and he's wobbly. Maybe that does go hand in hand with a an abortion by a physician. Stop. Like, enough. Right. But then why would she be running out to the car with a fucking coat hanger? Illegal abortion would not be performed if by a doctor with a coat hanger. Maybe it wasn't a doctor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a friend. No idea. Thanks for that. You're welcome, guys. Happy New Year. 
Merry Christmas. Happy freaking New Year. Merry Creepsmas. Thanks for everyone that came and joined our live. We had the best time. It was so fun. It was so fun. We want to do it again. Okay, guys. Well, we'll see you next week for Morgan's Creeps. creeps. See you next year. New, married, happy new creeps. What? I don't know. I'm okay. New year, new us. Yeah, we'll see you in 2024, which is going to be our fucking year because four. Season four, 2024, more married, four, fours, twos, a and lot fours. of fours, a lot of things that we love, even numbers. You know, that's our fave. That's when we thrive. Um, we do better even years. So, yeah, a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> just a tiny bit. Uh, all right, guys. Love you guys. Be so safe this new year and um, enjoy yourself. Love you. Tag us some pics where you look cute. Love you. Bye. Hey. <laughs>